All right, so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 5. And while you turn there, I just want to kind of set the context of where we are. Um, the last time we looked at the Gospel of Matthew, we were introduced to Jesus' 12 apostles. And just to briefly recap and get everybody back up to speed, um, these were, as we said, 12 very common men. There was nothing outstanding about any of them, nothing good anyway. Um, we could all relate to these men very easily. And they were chosen by Jesus. He called to him those whom he wanted. And he commissioned them to carry on the work of the kingdom when he would ascend back to heaven. These men were the new spiritual leaders of Israel. Uh, they were a sign of God's judgment. Uh, God's judgment on and the rejection of the spiritual leadership in the nation at the time. And their names, minus Judas of course, uh, will be engraved on the foundations of the New Jerusalem in eternity. And Jesus is about to begin an intensive training program with these men that will be a 24-7 exercise. Um, he will personally train them through his public and private teachings, um, through parables, through circumstances, uh, and through actions both small and miraculous. They're going to be with him every waking moment. They're going to eat with him. They're going to fellowship with him. They're going to sleep in the same area. They're going to walk along the road together. And this is all going to be an intense training program leading up to his dying on the cross, rising again, and going back to heaven. Because at that point, the ball is going to be in their hands and the kingdom is going to basically rest on their shoulders. So um, at the very onset of their training, he's going to give them a little taste of what to expect. And that's where we're going to pick up tonight. And in so doing, he's going to teach them a lesson um, that will be a fundamental truth. And it's not just going to be a fundamental truth for them. It's going to be a fundamental truth that every child of God and in particular every minister of God's word must learn. The overarching lesson will be that of trust. And as we go through, if you're a note taker, I'm going to try, I believe I've kind of whittled it down uh, to about six things uh, that God is trying to teach the disciples and us to trust him for in our mission in life. And I tried to do a little onomatopoeia thing where they all start with the letter P. So it'll give you some kind of way of remembering this. Um, he has to teach these men to trust before he sends them out because when he goes back to heaven, things are going to be a lot tougher. If they have to learn to trust him while he's there, how much more do they have to trust him whenever he is ascended back to heaven? You know, uh, the Christian faith is not one that we would have chosen. Have you ever thought about that? If God gave you and I a pen and a paper, and he said, hey, write out the kind of faith that you would like to live out, and I'll package it that way for you, none of us would have written out the faith of the Bible. Our faith uh, is never founded on what we can see in front of us, what we can touch near us. It's never founded on what we feel. Our faith is totally a faith of the mind. And uh, that's not the kind of faith any of us would choose for ourselves. It's not something by nature that we want. We want something that's supported by something we can see and touch and feel all the time, right? How many of us in here would like to wake up every morning and have some kind of tangible sign that God is with us that day? You know, you wake up every morning, Miss Glenda, there's a robin on your windowsill, so that's God's sign that he's with you, you know? Um, so I guess if you have a cat around the house... Your faith may be in jeopardy. I don't know. You could eat the robin and then you don't have any faith. That's, 
why it doesn't work that way. Um, in fact, if you live the Christian life very long, you found out that Satan, the world system, and even your own wicked heart is totally geared toward destroying this faith that you and I have to take based on what we know to be true. Everything around us is based on destroying that faith. So we have to learn how to trust, not when it's easy, but when it's hard to do so. We have to learn how to live our lives based on what we believe to be true because of what God tells us in His Word, regardless of, what any, of the circumstances around us, of the way I feel, of the way uh, other people treat me, of the way things go. And if we have to learn that lesson, how much more do these men need to learn this lesson on whom the future of the kingdom will rest once Christ ascends back to heaven? So, we read in Matthew 10, starting in verse 5 and 6, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is, a, this is very intentional on the part of Jesus. Um, the sheep of the house of Israel. The word for sheep here could denote a single sheep. If you're an English teacher, you know sheep in the... Singular is the same as sheep in the plural. Uh, but of course, in context, Jesus isn't talking about one person. It's not like there was just one lost person in all of Israel and everybody else is saved. That's not the truth. Um, it's plural. It means a sheepfold. And I bring that up because when Jesus speaks in those terms, often in the Bible, he's really referring to those of a specific nationality. Jesus tends to talk about sheepfolds, talking about different groups of believers that will ultimately be brought into one sheepfold under him, the one shepherd. A good example of that would be John 10, 16, um, where the Lord says of himself as the good shepherd, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So if you look at the context there, Jesus is speaking in terms of sheepfolds while specifically making a distinction between that of Israelites, according to the flesh, and Gentiles. I point that out because we shouldn't generalize this charge that he gives to the disciples too much. Yes, all believers are members of the Israel of God. Um, we... Know that in Christ we're all brought into the same sheepfold. We're all united in Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made a drink of one spirit. However, here Jesus is specifically sending out the twelve to reach just the perishing sheep of the flock of Israel. The first thing that the apostles had to trust God for here was for the right path. The right path. The first thing is the right path. And that, that not only means the right direction they should go, but the way that they will travel this path, how they'll act, how they'll conduct themselves. The phrase go nowhere in the Greek literally means that the apostles were to take no road or no route that would lead to any Gentiles. They were to avoid Gentile areas. They weren't even to pass through areas um, where Gentiles populated along the way. Also, they were to take no action and make no attempt to reach any Gentiles that they might meet by chance. Now listen to this. This means that if they encountered a Gentile along the way, they were not even to stop and converse with him. If a Gentile were to salute them on the road and say, good morning, how are you? They're supposed to just ignore it and go right on by. Now, in the Deep South, 
in the hospitality state, that sounds what? Rude. Exactly. That sounds very rude. But there's a purpose in this. God's not meaning to be rude. He's meaning to be intentional and direct and focused. Um, Think back to Elisha and his servant Gehazi. When Elisha was going to bring the Shunammite woman's dead son back to life, he sent Gehazi ahead of him and gave him specific instructions. He said in 2 Kings 4.29, he said to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply and lay my staff on the face of the child. Why did Elisha give this commandment? It's the same reason that that Jesus gives this commandment to his disciples when he says, go only to the flock of Israel, to the lost of Israel. Elisha was going to resurrect the dead boy, and Gehazi was to be the first to deliver the proof that that was going to happen. Back in these days, um, a man's staff was a type of signet. Um, It was... Something that you, it's kind of like leaving a credit card for, uh, you know, as a security. When you rent a car in Haiti, you have to give them your passport as a security because why? They know you're coming back for it, or you're just going to be a Haitian from now on. So they know you're coming back. If you lay, if you left, if you gave someone your staff, that they knew you were coming back for that. They knew you would follow it. They knew you would be there. So. Gehazi was to deliver the staff that was a pledge of Elisha that he was coming to the boy to do him good. He couldn't afford to get distracted because literally life and death was at stake. There was a boy who was in a state of death and if Elisha didn't come, he would stay dead. Likewise, these men were specifically to go to Israel and not to any Jews or not to any Samaritans. The Samaritans were... Uh, Some of you might know Samaritans were a half-breed kind of nationality. They were from the northern kingdom of Israel. Their forefathers had done what God had commanded Israel not to do. They had intermingled with the Canaanites. So their bloodline was all mixed up. The, The Jews from the southern kingdom of Judah considered them to be impure. They considered them to not really be Israelites because their their bloodline was tainted. So they were to go to no Samaritans, they were to go to no Gentiles, they were only to go to those in Israel. They were to set their face like flint and deliver the message that King Jesus was sending them to deliver to the people it was at that time intended for, because the spiritual life of these recipients was also at stake. That's why it says don't go salute anyone, don't go dabble around anywhere, don't waste your time. You go to who I'm sending you to because those are the people that life and death is hanging in the balance. So you have to go with the staff, so to speak, with the signet, with the message that I'm coming and I will give them life. So does this mean that Jesus doesn't care about Gentiles? Well, obviously he does. God's always had a plan to save both Jews and Gentiles. The scripture makes it clear in both Old Testament and New Testament. This exclusion of the Gentiles, um, we should say, was only for a limited time during the apostles' ministry. Jesus, as we know, would later say in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations. And we see just one example of God extending that salvation to the Gentiles in Acts 11. Just in case we'd be confused as to what Matthew 28 would mean, he gives us... Uh, He gives us a a good portrayal here. After Peter 
had recounted how God had saved the household of Cornelius uh, to the Jerusalem council. If you remember, Cornelius had seen, I mean, uh, Peter had seen the, the vision of the bed sheet being let down from heaven, had clean and unclean animals. God said, what I've made clean is clean. Don't call anything I've made clean unclean. And that was God saying that Gentiles were to be accepted into the kingdom. Peter goes, he preaches to Cornelius' house. All of them Gentiles, by the way, what happens? They get saved. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they're baptized. Um, as he said this to the Jerusalem council, we read in verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So there are at least two reasons that I want us to see for this sanction during the apostles' maiden voyage out into the world with the gospel. First, it establishes Israel as the root. The gospel and Christ in the flesh have come to all of us through the nation of Israel. That's just a fact. All these things that we hang to came to us through the physical nation of Israel. Paul writes in Romans 9, starting verse 4, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And in chapter 11, of Romans, he says to believing Gentiles concerning, concerning Israel's rejection of the gospel, says in verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although wild olive shoots were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Gentiles are nourished and made alive by being grafted into the root, the covenant of salvation that God first made with Abraham. Although a partial hardening is in place right now, and most of God's saving work is being done all over the world in Gentile areas and in Gentile lives, we know that Scripture tells us that in the last days before Christ comes back, there will be a revival among the nation of Israel and there will be a saving work of God that revisits the nation of Israel in some way. So Israel is the root. The second reason that Jesus sends the apostles to the house of Israel first is, as we said last time, because of judgment. That's something I want us to really listen to because this applies to us in a, in a very intense way. Um, these 12 are going to go out and preach the gospel. Some are going to receive it. Some are going to reject it. In either case, the people of Israel will be judged to either be righteous or to be condemned. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life, right? Whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not have life. The wrath of God abides on him. We are judged righteous or condemned based on what we do with Christ, what we do with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, in either case, Israel will be the same way. They're either going to be righteous or condemned based on what they do with this message. This makes sense because when God brings judgment, where does he bring it first? He brings it to his own people, right? He brings it to the church. He brings it to his own house first. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.17, For it is time for judgment to begin where? At the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So God sets precedent here. Israel's the root. Israel's also the first to be judged. How are they going to be judged? The gospel. 
be presented with the gospel, and wherever they fall, right or left of the gospel, accept or reject the gospel, that's judgment. Now, we should note right here that judgment doesn't always have to be a negative thing, does it? Anytime we say judgment, everybody's, you know, everybody's face all gets about the same way. Everybody looks like they've sucked on a sour persimmon all afternoon so they could come up and hear me preach. Um, that's not really the way we have to see judgment. Judgment can be a wonderful thing. If you're found to be in the right, judgment is a great thing, isn't it? Imagine if you went to, if you were accused of a crime that you'd never done, and it was a heinous crime, and it could potentially ruin your life, and you get there, and the jury finds you unanimously, extendingly not guilty. That's a wonderful thing. You love that judgment. Because Israel was the nation that God had ordained to be His chosen people, and the route by which He would nourish the world with Christ and the gospel, not only would judgment come to this nation first, but also salvation would come to this nation first through the gospel. Those whom God had judged for salvation, those whom He had elected out of Israel, would receive this decision first before any Gentiles. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 1? He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek this is why Jesus specifically says to the apostles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the apostles had to learn to trust God for their path. And we all have to learn to trust Him for the same. So the twelve must trust Jesus for the right path, where to go and how to, how to walk along the way. This may not have been hard since the, uh, the, these apostles still in their own mind uh, probably thought that salvation was exclusively for Israel anyway. However, the conditions under which Jesus commands them to go would probably force them to trust God uh, in a greater way. They had to learn, secondly, how to trust God for provision. They had to trust God for provision. He says in verses 9 and 10, back in Matthew 10, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or staff, for the laborer deserves his food. When he says, acquire no gold or silver or copper, Jesus is basically saying, don't take any money in your pockets. Um, now, I would point out right here that this is a very specific situation. This doesn't mean that every time we go on a mission trip that, Stephen, we have to, before we get on the church bus, we all empty out our pockets, we throw all our cash in a bucket, and, uh, you know, we unload our, or we leave our luggage and unhook the trailer that we were going to take and leave everything and all that kind of stuff. That's not necessarily what it means. This is a kind of one-time situation that Jesus is intentionally setting these apostles in a very narrow lane to run in so that they're forced to learn some hard lessons really quickly because they're going to have to learn on an accelerated level. They're going to have to pick this up quick. However, this is something that we all have to learn. Um, when he says this, it may not mean that they had to hand over what they happened to have with them at the time, uh, monetarily speaking, but it does mean they shouldn't go sell something or run home to get enough money to go. It's kind of like most of us, if we go on a trip, most of us take some cash with us, don't we? If we go, to, if we go on a mission trip to Haiti, we've got a lot of money with us because you never know what might happen, and if, some, if everything goes bad, you need to have enough money to buy another plane ticket, 
you know, be able to eat down there for a while. You've got to be able to make it. If you go on a vacation away from the house, um, people used to take a wad of cash in the car. Now we've got credit cards and things like that. So anytime we go anywhere, we've got a really big financial resource right in our back pocket, don't we? Or in our purse or whatever you may carry it in. We don't just go with whatever we happen to have in our wallet at the time. These men weren't allowed to do that. Not only that, but these men uh, were not to take any extra clothes or food along the way. In verse 10, Jesus says that they were to take no bag. Now, a uh, fun story for you. I had a friend years ago who was going to preach um, in another church, and he read this verse, Matthew 10, 10, <clears throat> in the King James Version. And instead of bag, it says scrip, S-C-R-I-P. And he mistakenly took that to mean script with a T on the end, as in a written document. So he thought that God was telling him that he shouldn't write out a manuscript for his sermon. He shouldn't even take notes along with him. More than that, Kyle, he thought the Holy Spirit was telling him that he shouldn't even study before he gives a sermon because that would be taking a script in his head. He thought that he was just supposed, God, Jesus was telling him just to get up there blindly, coldly, and just let the Spirit's anointing hit him and vomit out whatever God had given him. And you can imagine what the result of that was. But that's not what this word means. Uh, the word from which we get script is para, and it denotes literally a leather pouch that one might carry food in. Uh, Jesus tells the disciples not to take any extra food for the journey, which may not sound like a big deal to us because most of the time, unless you're my wife, Melanie, when you get in the car, you don't take a whole grocery store worth of snacks with you. If you go to our car, there are Cheez-Its and there's baby food and there's those Bavita little snack things and Pop-Tarts. And now, you know, Miranda, if you go back to her part of the car, you've got empty wrappers where those things used to be. <laughs> The bones of past trips, so to speak. So Sam's Club graveyard back there. But most of us don't travel like that because what do we have? Well, if you can't go very far down the road, there's a convenience store, there's a gas station, there's a food chain. If you're Kyle, there's a McDonald's around every corner. The only place that I got an amen out of Kyle is McDonald's. <laughs> you know that was a playful amen because it wasn't deep. Usually if I say a good thing, Kyle's like, amen. Almost shudders me. I'm like, ah, oh, the man speaking. But they were not allowed to take extra food. This would be like us if we decided to go into, I don't know, the desert and not take any bottles of water, not take any snacks, not take any food. That would scare us a little bit, wouldn't it? Because what could potentially happen? You could get in a bad way. You could get sick. You could get malnourished. You could die. This is the kind of situation these men were being put in. He also tells them not to carry two tunics, two pairs of sandals, or even a staff. Now, in this journey, the extra clothes wouldn't have been about fashion. The, the hardship here wouldn't have been that they had to preach in the same suit that they had to preach in the, the day before. And the problem wouldn't have been that, hey, my clothes got dirty, so I need something clean to wear. Their concern would have been functionality. Jesus is saying to these guys, don't take extra clothes in case what you have wears out or tears. Trust God to meet your needs. The staff would have most likely been a form of protection to fight off attackers or wild animals. So they were having to totally trust God for protection. 
This would be like God saying, go on a mission trip, but trust me, don't take a gun. Go to the worst parts of Detroit. Don't take your gun. Just go and trust me to, to protect you. So why were they to do this? Because they had to learn who they were working for and how faithful he is. The word for laborer in verse 10 means toiler or teacher. Now, all of us serve God. Every, every born-again disciple of Christ serves God. We all toil for the Lord. We work for the Lord. We do all that we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it as unto the Lord. Um, but most specifically, this is tailored toward people who toil in teaching, those who carry the message of the gospel, men who preach. The one who works in teaching the gospel deserves his food, truffet. He deserves his rations or wages. And although he works for the good of the church as a servant leader of the church, the man of God does not work for the church. I just, I just bring this up because you know, we've probably all heard horror stories about, especially in the Bible Belt, pastors aren't really always treated all that hospitably, are they? I think the average tenure of a pastor at a church is about two to two and a half years right now. Brother Tony's knocked that out of the park like six times over, but, you know, usually about two years. You know why? It's not always a comfortable place to be. In a, in a world of consumer mentality, as soon as everything's not the way you want it to be, who does everybody always blame first? The pastor. Who's the first person to get on the chopping block? The pastor. And it doesn't really seem to mean, it doesn't really seem to matter when he's on the chopping block. It could be his birthday and they'll get rid of it most of the time. I know not here. I know we love each other, but you and I both know churches like that. God will judge those congregations and he will judge them harshly. Because the man of God works for God. And if you treat his ambassador that way, that should be a fearful thing. These men had to learn, just like everybody else had to learn, they didn't work for the people that they would soon shepherd. They worked for God. So they gave themselves for these people. The man of God works to reach the lost, but he does not work for the lost. He's called to labor serving God in everything he does. Jesus is giving a practicum on the lesson he taught the disciples in Matthew chapter 6 when he says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. Think about it. There was no church present at that time like we think about today. Um, these guys weren't going to get hungry on the way and go to First Baptist Galilee and get something out of the pantry or Kimberly out of the yard sale closet. They weren't going to get new sandals or a tunic that fit them, just had a stain on the belly button or something like that. If you looked in our, if you looked in our yard sale closet, there's all sorts of clothing anomalies in there. But they were going to have to learn the same lesson that God had expressed to Israel in Deuteronomy 8 where he says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but what? But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. 
This doesn't mean that we expect our needs to be met in obviously miraculous ways. It doesn't mean my car breaks down. I'm just, you know, sitting out there on the side of the driveway waiting for somebody to come drop off a new Cadillac. That's not necessarily what it means. It doesn't mean that we sit like Elijah and wait for the ravens to come. Most often we trust that God will prompt others to provide for our need. If we don't trust God for our needs, that's between us and God. If I have a need and I don't trust God, he'll judge me on that, on my lack of trust. And if I don't obey God in giving to meet the needs of others, God will discipline me for that too. So we have to learn both lessons. We have to trust not only that he provide our needs, but that he use us to meet the needs of others. God was also calling them to trust him for the third thing, protection. Path, provision, we're at protection. One of the biggest dangers in ministry can be the desire for filthy lucre or dishonest financial gain. These men, as well as all of us, must learn the lesson that Paul spells out in 1 Timothy 6 when he says uh, in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Why is that important right there? Because God's already, he's already put them in a position where they have to trust him for food and clothing. He's already promised that God knows you need these things. He's going to give you food and clothing. And now we see that if we have food and clothing, we've got to be content. We can't be, we can't be greedy for more. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some people have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with pains. That's heavy stuff, isn't it? Wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. I mean, you're saying that this could be the thing that causes men of God to end up not only leaving, like falling out of the ministry or being disqualified from the ministry, but falling down a downward spiral where they're not even in the faith, they're not even believers, they're not in the church, they're lost for eternity, they're proven to have never been born again. Yes, that is the slippery slope that God is describing for all those who had preached the gospel, really all of us, but specifically for all those who had preached the gospel. Why? Because there's so much opportunity. These men are going to be given an opportunity that we're going to talk about here in just a second that would set them up like a golf ball on a tee to be driven in this wrong direction if God didn't warn them and protect them from going that way. The desire to get rich, especially out of ministry, has been and continues to be a plague in the religious world. This is prevalent not only in secular religions, it's also in so-called Christian circles. And Jesus gave another charge here to protect his disciples from the trap. He says in verse 8, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Jesus reminds the disciples that they didn't pay anything for the ability to perform these wonders. Peter didn't go to Jesus and say, hey, I'll give you 20 shekels of silver if you let me cast out a demon. That didn't happen. They didn't even apply for this. They didn't even come ask for this. Jesus chose them. He picked them. He called them. He gave this to them. It was all his choice. They couldn't purchase it. There was nothing in them. We said they were very common, ordinary men. There was nothing outstanding about them to magnetize them to themselves toward Jesus so that he would choose them and give them these, these powers so they could do these signs and wonders. They were granted these manifestations of God's power not for themselves or because of anything they had to offer but for his kingdom purpose alone. 
I want you to track with me very carefully here. The idea that these disciples would be tempted to use these incredible miracles for personal gain was a very real threat to their souls. Wait a minute, they're the apostles. Yes, and one of them was a thief. Who was that? Judas. What was the end result of Judas? Well, Satan entered into his heart. He betrayed Christ for silver in a bag. And he hung himself and he's spending eternity in a hotter hell than anybody else. Do you see how dangerous this could be? The opportunity for greed to be the slippery slope that killed every one of these men. This is a real threat. God had to protect them, these men from themselves and he protected them the same way he protects every single one of us. You want divine protection? Get in the Bible. How does God protect you? He warns you. How does God make sure the elect persevere until the end? He gives warnings that only the elect will see in Scripture and it will be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and it terrifies us and we take it seriously and we live our life accordingly. That's how He protects us from ourselves through the Word of God. He's doing the same here. Simon the magician made this fatal error. If you remember in Acts chapter 8, Simon proves to be the first false convert that we know of in the New Testament. He thought that he would make a profit from being able to perform the same signs as the apostles. So what did he do? He offered to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from them. And in verse 20, it says, But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. This is a real problem for the TV preachers on TBN and Daystar. The servants of the true God serve the one who says, Not give me a check of $500 or $1,000. He doesn't say so into my ministry so that I will bless you. What does he say? In Isaiah 55, he says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. One of the conditions that God calls us or commands that we realize when we come to Him, is that we have nothing to offer. And if we have nothing to offer when we receive Christ from Him, how dare we put a monetary condition or some other kind of condition on extending that same grace to somebody else? In order to please God, we have to adopt the heart of trust that prays, give me neither poverty nor riches, Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. We have to trust God to protect us from ourselves. That's a good place to bring up the fourth way in which these apostles would be called to trust God. They would have to learn to trust God not only for the path, not only for provision, and protection, but they would have to trust God totally for productivity. Productivity. We talked about this last time, but again in verse 8, after telling these twelve to go out and proclaim the kingdom, he says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. The reason for these miracles was to prove that the message was true. Because there was no Bible at the time, no New Testament, this was the only way that they could definitively know that the message was true was through the signs and wonders. 
That's what Nicodemus says when he comes to Jesus in the night. He says, we know that you're from God. Why? Because no one can do the things you do unless he's from God. Even the Pharisees got this was the proof that Jesus' message was true. Now, we don't see these manifestations today because, at least in America, we don't need them. We have the Bible by which to test doctrine. That's what Scripture is for. Now, you might say, but we do need these things, Brian. We, there's still sick people, and there's still demon-possessed people, and man, there's, there's still dead people that need to be raised up. And I want to challenge that for a minute because that's a wrong way of thinking. And it may not be the reason that you think it's wrong way for thinking, a wrong way of thinking. What we, what we must understand is that these miracles were never, ever about the physical problems of the people. Does Jesus love people? Yes, he left heaven and died and rose again for people, for sinners. He came and died for the, not the good, but the ungodly. Yes, he loves you. Does Jesus love to be compassionate and heal sick people? Yes. But if God's goal was to just heal sick people, we would have no hospitals on the planet. Everybody would be healed. Right now, that's not his goal. Healing you physically is not his end game. You know why? He sees things in a bigger light than you and I do. He looks in the scope of eternity and you and I look in the scope of this illness. It was never about the physical problems of these people. It was always a means of reaching their spiritual need. If you remember, the apostles didn't do these things through some mystical power. When I say mystical power, I mean some, uh, some uh, other world, like some voodoo kind of thing. It wasn't about chants and rituals and talismans and, and make-believe magic and all that kind of stuff. It was... It's very understandable. It's logical when you understand how God sees things and how He operates. They did these things through the truth of the gospel. Now, some of us may have a hard time seeing that, but that's true. He did these things through the truth of the gospel. Um, they preached the truth, and then the miracles followed as a confirmation of the truth. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4-6 says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Why? Because our gospel came to you. Not only in word, but also in the power of the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with joy in the Holy Spirit. The gospel came to these people and it came in words that were proven true by the manifested power of the Spirit. Then why did these men and women become imitators of Paul and other believers and of the Lord? Why did they become what we would term as saved? It wasn't because they saw signs. Paul says it was because they received the word. The apostles preached the truth and God confirmed the truth with wonders. If they hadn't preached the truth, would the wonders have come? No. Absolutely not. It has always been about the truth of the gospel that sinners must hear and believe in order to be saved. If you're ever in an environment where the truth doesn't reign and you see 
supposed wonders, supposed signs, supposed gifts, but the truth of the of biblical doctrine is not being espoused there faithfully, all that you're seeing is fake. It's false. It's made up. Biblically, it has to be. In the same way, when we go out and faithfully proclaim the gospel message in a doctrinally sound way, we will see the spiritual parallel of these same things even today. I want to give you a precedent for this. I think Psalm 103 gives an example of this kind of application. And I'm going to stretch this a little further than I usually do, but I think this is biblically okay. Um, Psalm 103, David writes, Bless the Lord of my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, forgives your iniquities, redeems your life from the pit, crowns your life with steadfast love and mercy. What's he talking about there? Salvation. He's talking about the forgiveness of sin and the salvation of God. And right in the middle of that context, what does he say? He heals all your diseases. Does that mean that David's writing about being physically healed? No, that means he's talking about being spiritually healed. Being spiritually healed from being sin sick is one way we could say it. Like I said, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to spiritualize this verse here in Matthew 10 to that extent because I believe that's a good precedent. We may not see sick people when we preach the gospel. We may not see sick people leave hospices totally healed. But we can see the sin-sick inmate leave a prison totally whole. We may not see dead bodies rise up out of the casket, but we will see those dead in their transgressions raised to new life in Christ. The spiritually defiled, the lepers, will be washed and sanctified. And those who have been led astray by Satan to do his will shall be granted repentance and loose themselves from his evil snare. These things will happen when we trust God for productivity and simply preach the gospel. And I think we have to say that just because so many of us get so discouraged in doing the good work of the kingdom. So many of us get discouraged because, you know what, we go to our job every day and we want to be good examples of Christ. And what, does it seem, what good does it seem to do? Most days, none, Right? I don't know about you, I try to be a good example for Christ. I don't have people knocking my door down there in the classroom saying, oh, Coach Means, what must I do to be saved? And then I go home and preach the gospel and they feed me and I baptize their whole household, Kyle. That doesn't, that doesn't happen too often. In fact, up to date, it's happened zero times. There's always tomorrow, I guess. Or we, we witness, how about this, we witness to our loved ones who are lost we have households where there are women of God who love God dearly and they're married to lost men and they try their best to submit the way that Peter tells them to and in humility and in quiet submission they show the adornment of of a, of a, a clean heart before God and they try to win their husband the way God tells them to and what happens? Seemingly nothing. That's when we have to learn to trust God like He's talking about trusting Him. He didn't say it would instantly happen. He said, trust me. And we can know that God will provide not only the path, not only the provision, not only the protection. He will, in His time, provide the productivity. If we 
delight in the law of the Lord and obey the law of the Lord, just give ourselves over to it and to doing everything he's called us to do with our lives, then we will be like that tree that's planted by the river of water. We'll bear our fruit in our season. Our leaf won't wither. Whatever we put our hand to, it will prosper. Maybe not the way we think it should, but we can trust God that it will. We have to be encouraged by these things. Because you know what? You don't need encouragement when everything's going right, do you? You don't need me to get up here and tell you that. Every, when every time you go out and you say anything about Jesus, everybody on the job site, all your lost kids, all your wayward friends and family just come flocking to the altar and get saved. You don't need me to say this stuff. But you know what? When you live real life in a broken, fallen world with broken, fallen people that don't love Jesus and deny Jesus, although it rips your heart out that they don't because you know what they're headed for, that's when you need the gift of prophecy to be working from this pulpit so that we can talk about the Word of God and what God promises there and you can be edified and you can be exhorted and you can be comforted. So that you can keep going out and trusting God doing the things that he's called you to do and wait for him to do what he's promised to do. The fifth thing that they had to trust God for was proof. Proof. Look again at the command that Jesus gave these men. He tells them in verse 6, to go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The word lost here is apalumi. It means to destroy or specifically perishing. This is talking about those who are literally perishing in a spiritual sense. Now, who are the perishing that Jesus is primarily concerned with in this mission? As we said earlier, it is his sheep who are in the sheepfold of Israel. This doesn't necessarily mean every Israelite. It means that these apostles were being sent out to reach a specific group within Israel, the lost and perishing sheep of Christ who happened to be scattered throughout the nation of Israel. The Bible makes it plain that Jesus didn't come to save everybody. He came to save a people for God. All those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Jesus came to die for the sake of the elect. Only the elect will hear Jesus' voice and know it. Only those whom the Father gives to him will come to him. The apostles wrote only to the elect. The apostle Paul said he endured everything for the sake of the elect. The elect alone are guaranteed to persevere until the end. Jesus drives home the necessity for knowing who the elect are when he says in verse 11 and whatever town or village you enter find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart so how are these men to know who is worthy who the true sheep of Christ's flock were Jesus gives the answer in what he tells them to do he says for them to proclaim if you want to know who the true sheep in this world are, you just proclaim the message of the kingdom. You'll find out. To proclaim means to herald something. It's the same idea as a, a public crier, maybe back in the medieval days. Think about knights in shining armor. The king would send out a proclamation to all the land and there would be a public crier who would stand out in the city streets and he would boldly and boisterously yell out these proclamations to everyone so that everyone could hear and they didn't do it timidly because they were backed by the very authority of the king himself. 
And we're called to go out and boldly declare the gospel of the kingdom to everyone. And we trust God to confirm who the true sheep are scattered among all the goats when we do it. If we proclaim the gospel like Jesus tells us to, then we're going to have a pretty good idea of who might be a lost sheep and definitely who isn't. Jesus gives us a polarizing message. Again, he says in verse 7, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I'm going to make a statement, and some of you are going to guffaw at me when I make it, and then I'm going to hopefully explain, so just hold on to your seat a minute. Most in the American church today think that we have to find a way to make Jesus more appealing to the unregenerate world. If you go to especially mega churches or really pretty much... 90% of the churches in America today, you're going to see all these little gimmicks. You're going to see um, watering down of the truth. You're going to see um, all sorts of worldly ways of trying to make the unregenerate sinner like Jesus or accept Jesus a little better, a little quicker, a little easier. Uh, you got churches... Um, all over the nation that look more like nightclubs than they do churches. The music sounds more like music, I guess you'd hear at a nightclub. There are literally churches you can go to where the night before, the bar that you have to pass by on the way to the service was selling beer on tap and whatever the night before, and as soon as church is over, they're going to open it back up because they're having church in a bar because they want to look as much like the world as they can possibly look so that the lost world will be more comfortable with Jesus. Now here's my statement. The American church today thinks that we have to find a way to make Jesus more appealing to the unregenerate world, and that's true. Now don't freak out. Just hang on. Jesus is not appealing at all to the lost world because they're blinded by the things of the world and they can't even see it. Second uh, Corinthians 4 says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Our job is to make Him more appealing but it's by declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what do I mean by that? What do I mean when I say that we need to make Jesus more appealing to the lost? Well, I don't mean that we need to become more like the world or that we need some new gimmick. And I certainly don't mean that we should change the message of who Jesus is or what he requires. I mean that we have to do what we can to see the eyes of the spiritually blind opened. And all we can do is preach the truth of the kingdom. Everything else is worthless. That is literally the only weapon or only tool we have is the gospel. So what does it mean to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? The word kingdom comes from basilia in the Greek, which denotes royalty or a rule or a realm of authority. This means that we declare to men today that the kingdom of Christ, the reality of Christ's rule is very near. Why do we have to declare that? Because the world doesn't want to believe it. The world chooses not to believe it. And until Christ opened your eyes and mine, we did the same 
thing. We might have been raised in church and we like to think about the return of Christ coming when? A long way off. Why? Because I still want to live and do what I want to do. I want to sow my wild oats. I want to do all that kind of stuff. And then on a deathbed confession or I'm too old to go out and do things that I like doing right now or whatever, then I'll get my life right with Christ. Does anybody else remember? You don't have to admit it, but do you remember feeling that way or thinking that way? Yes, most of us probably did and the rest of us have gotten so old we don't remember. We preach... That the King of Kings has come. That's what we preach. He's come. He is actually here. His messengers are here. His truth is here. His body is here. Look at you. You're here. His spirit is here. We tell the lost world that King Jesus is not just coming one day. Yes, He is coming, but He is here He's here right now. It's not like he might come or he might forget about it. No, his body is here. He is coming and he is ruling as he sees fit, whether you believe it or not. We preach that because the king has revealed himself, the imminent fact of the kingdom can no longer be ignored because he has revealed his righteous nature and his holy character None should fool themselves by expecting that anyone who falls short of this will be included in the kingdom. What I mean by that is this, because Jesus has come and He showed the perfection that God requires and that God will accept, nobody can rightly live a life thinking He's going to accept anything less than the perfection of Christ. If Christ had to live that way, we are responsible for the same kind of life. That's what he proved. We ask the world this, and we ask those in our churches who live like the world this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then we tell them, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We call men and women to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We preach that it's only a short time until King Jesus will return and call to account all His subjects, both those who are now willingly and lovingly obedient as well as the lawless rebels who defy His coming. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. We proclaim that though it may not seem as though Jesus is in total control of all things, it is only a short time until He comes back. And on that day, all those who have lived their lives for the things of the world, regardless of their confession, regardless of their flowery testimonies, and regardless of their squishy feelings, they will know the truth of the judgment of God, and they will cry out to the mountains for the rocks to fall on them and crush their brains out, lest they have to face the wrath of the Lamb. We preach that King Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of 
lawlessness. We preach that when King Jesus does return, all those who now live their lives as if they are the commanders of their own destiny will have no more disillusions about the reality of His sovereign reign over them as He enacts judgment against them. The message of the kingdom that Jesus would present to the Jews who thought that they were safe because they were Jews was this. In that place, talking of hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. Likewise, we herald the truth to all the pretenders and all the unrepentant of the world. King Jesus will say to each of them individually, cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we preach that the kingdom is at hand in that we call men and women to prepare for His arrival. To those who love the Lord and await His coming, we join in their expectant longing. And to those who dismiss His coming as something that will never happen or is so far off that they need not surrender to His Lordship now, we say, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's what it means to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's fiery preaching. When He tells the disciples... You proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he literally means is not on the front end, grace and mercy like we like to think about the gospel message. He literally tells them, tell them the first part of the gospel message. The king is coming and he will reckon all accounts settled and you'd better get right with him because if not, you will be thrown into a sinner's hell for eternity. It's coming. Are you ready? That's the message these men were sent into the towns with. you understand? It's not the way we usually think about the gospel. It's the way the Bible always describes the gospel. And we preach this gospel truth because this is the mechanism by which God opens the eyes of those blinded by the deceit of the world. Now, I said that we need to make Jesus more appealing to the lost. I also say that when we preach the truth... He opens their eyes to the truth of the kingdom. The truth that Jesus is the King of kings, that He's coming back, that He will judge all of His subjects by a holy standard, and that He will find them guilty by their sinful deeds and throw them in hell forever. And when they see that only He can save them from this fate, when He opens their eyes, opens our eyes to that reality, then all of a sudden, guess what? Jesus becomes the most appealing thing in the universe. If you remember when that happened in your life, when you knew the weight of hell was resting upon you, that you were condemned by your sin, there was nothing you could do to save yourself, but you needed a Savior, and then all of a sudden you saw Jesus with the eyes of your heart, and you realized that He alone could save you if only He would, I guarantee you there was nothing more appealing in the entire universe than this Savior. He's everything. And you, you, at that point, you finally realize He is everything. If I lose everything else, He's all that matters. That's what I meant when I said, yes, we have to make Jesus more appealing. I don't mean we have to make the music more worldly. I don't mean we have to make the message more carnal. I don't mean we have to dress in a different way or change the, the lighting or anything like that. I'm pretty much opposed to all that. I say that what we do is we preach the gospel and God changes hearts and God rips out hearts of stone and puts within those 
bodies now, hearts of flesh, and Jesus for the first time ever becomes as appealing as only He can truly be when the light of truth clicks on in the mind and heart of formerly unregenerate people. When we see Him this way, sin loses all its allure. We see it as the poison that it really is. And we see Him as the only hope of rescue. We see the mountain of our sin and we feel the chilling truth of judgment and eternal damnation. Then we see the reality of the cross. We see that the King who will be our judge is actually the one who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities so that He could find us innocent. We see the one who would sentence us to eternal death and damnation in the lake of fire and away from His presence. That He's taking our death sentence for us on the tree, abandoned by God while He identifies with us in an unalterable, eternal way. We hear the One who will declare many to be worthless and condemned because of their lawlessness say now to us, well done, good and faithful servant, not because of our righteousness, but because of His own imputed righteousness and value. When we see that, you can't make Christ more appealing because it's perfect. Anyone who hears this and responds rightly is worthy of our attention and they're worthy of our continued efforts. Jesus tells the disciples that as they went about proclaiming the kingdom this way, whoever received the message, the message of the kingdom being at hand, the hellfire and brimstone, if they received that message, they could count them as worthy of their own presence. Again, we saw in 1 Thessalonians 1.4 that Paul said to the believers that he knew that God had chosen them. How? First, because the gospel came to them. And secondly, because when the gospel did come, they received the word. So the apostles were to go about declaring the kingdom in the form of coming judgment. And anyone who responded appropriately, they counted as worthy of their further attention. They would actually attempt to stay and lodge with these people. They were not just going to spend more time with these people. They were going to live with these people and spend a lot of time with these people. Why? Because they're the only ones that they should really be. They're the ones they should be investing in the most. The gospel call goes out to everyone. But when anyone proves to be as we like to say around here, low-hanging fruit, ripe fruit. If anyone seems to be a sheep of Christ in that they hear His voice even in judgment and they're just drawn to Him to find out what they must do to be saved, we invest in those people. So then we see in verse 12 and 15, as we're kind of drawing to an end here, He says, As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it's not worthy, let your peace return to it. Excuse me, return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment. Excuse me, more bearable on the day of judgment for the, for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. This leads us to the last thing that we'll say about the apostles' lesson and trust. They had to learn to trust God now for penal action. Penal justice. As these men would find those who might be worthy because they responded in appropriate fear or desire to be saved at the message of the coming day of judgment, they would enter their homes and further test to see if they were truly worthy. Now the term greet it 
denotes a warm salutation to a householder or to greet in love. You know, although the apostles were backed by the authority of Christ, they still had to be gentle. They still had to be loving and respectful. I think you can see, you can go on YouTube and you can see some street preachers that are supposedly they're working for Christ and they're anything but gentle or loving or merciful. They're jerks. They need to sit down. Someone should pull their stool out of them, take their sandwich sign away and teach them the ways of God better. That's not what we're called to do. We're never called to be butchers. We're called to be water bearers, I guess. We go and we take living water to the thirsty. That's what we do. They still have to be respectful and loving and gentle. But what did this greeting consist of? What, what did they say? Did they just go in and say salutations? Like, you know, in Charlotte's Web, salutations. I've got a few over here. I figured they'd like that. You know who you are. Aubrey and Katie. So... You know, that, that's not, no, that's not exactly, it's not, hey, how's your mom and them? That's not what the, the greeting of the apostles was. Um, if you want to know what the greeting of the apostles was, look in the beginning of just about every single epistle in the New Testament and you see one. Um, a good example would be first, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. We read such a greeting. It says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where the rubber really meets the road on this whole thing. Many people in the world will get a little antsy when you start talking about hell, won't they? You can go to any drunk at a party and they can be, you know, three sheets in the wind. You start talking about hell, they're going to start acting different. I've talked to drunks before. they got a beer in their hand. They just bought and that kind of stuff. And I start witnessing. They're like, man... God sent you to me. I'm going to go throw my beer away right now. And they go throw it away. And 20 seconds later, you look, they got them two more. Yeah, that was, that was effective, wasn't it? I don't know. They got two more. Maybe I made them twice as much as Son of Hell as they were. I don't know. No, that's not, that's not where, that's not where everything kind of culminates. It culminates on what you do with Jesus. As soon as you start talking about judgment, everybody gets a little antsy, but few people will accept that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the only one who can save on that day. Just because someone gets scared of hell doesn't mean they necessarily want to serve Jesus. doesn't mean they're willing to submit to Jesus. It doesn't mean that they're willing to accept his terms. The disciples were told to search out those who were most inclined to hear and accept the message as well as house and feed them for no payment other than for a prophet's reward. If the warm greeting in Jesus' name was received warmly, they were proven to be worthy and they would receive a prophet's reward or the reward of these apostles. The peace of the apostles was that reward. The peace of the apostles would rest on that house. Now what peace did these apostles have? The peace that only Jesus can give and will give to those who are his is the kind of peace that they had. Um, he says in John 14, 27, before he would go to the cross, he says to his followers, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be 
afraid. Now, I want you to put this in context. These people that are proving to be worthy, why were they, why were the apostles even in their home? Because they had preached hellfire and brimstone. They had preached the coming judgment of the king in the kingdom. And these people had trembled with fear and approached them in some way of saying, what must we do to be saved? You got me. I know I'm lost. I'm terrified. I don't want to go to hell. What have I got to do? Now, can you imagine? Listen, can you imagine if you were in that situation, if you were... You had just been freshly terrified over the understanding of your own condemnation because of your sin, only to then be given faith in the gospel and the salvation that Jesus gives you. Can you imagine the great peace that would come with that? Can you imagine how precious the reward of peace would be? If you remember when you were in that situation, when God first convicted you over your sin and you knew that you were lost and you were perishing... And then if you remember when God finally got it into your head and into your heart that he had saved you in Christ Jesus and that was no longer your fate, do you remember how precious that peace of mind was? I do. It's precious. The most precious thing in the world. This was a great reward. These people were willing to house and feed these prophets of God here only to receive a prophet's reward and what a reward it really was. They would receive this peace because in receiving the apostles who carried Christ's message, they received Christ. Jesus tells us this when he says to his apostles in verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now on the other hand, some would prove to be truly unworthy by the way that they received this greeting. Regardless of how these people uh, might have responded to the fire and brimstone preaching of the coming king and his judgment, if they rejected this salutation from the Lord Jesus' emissaries, it was because they rejected him as Lord and proved to be utterly unworthy. Jesus tells his apostles that if they thought someone was under conviction and they entered their house uh, and they gave this greeting and the greeting was received coldly, if they said, we come in the name of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ, if they were received coldly at that point, then they were to leave that household. They weren't to waste any more time there. They weren't to spend the next year trying to come up with some clever way to get them to accept Jesus. They weren't to sit there and mastermind some new way of packaging the gospel and say, well, that didn't work. Let's twist it around. Maybe we start with the grace in, and then eventually two years later, after they followed us for a while, we've got them plugged into ministry. We know they're probably not going to up and leave as soon as we offend them. Then we'll start confronting their sins slowly. You know, we, they, they, weren't, they didn't sit there and try to manipulate the gospel to manipulate unregenerate hearts into just trying to act better. They preached the gospel, and if it wasn't received, they left. They were to leave them, taking the gospel and all its benefits with them. Many people will come to church every now and then. We've all seen this. And when you preach about hell... They're going to appear to respond. They'll flood the altars. They'll cry. They'll want to have a counseling session after. They may make a confession. They may even get baptized, whatever. But if they prove to reject Jesus as their Lord by their lifestyle over time following that, then Jesus is letting us know that they've rejected the gospel as well as all its benefits. There's no question. And then there's a third group or a third situation here that Jesus tells his disciples about. He says, and if anyone will not receive you, 
or listen to your words. Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now, the disciples might have thought, and I really want Kyle and Tony especially to listen to this. The disciples might have thought because of their message or the miracles that they would be accepted either instantly or over time. It's nothing these guys don't know. It's just very specific to preachers, but to all of us. They might have thought because of the the validity of their message or because of the gifts and the wonders that they could work that they would be just readily accepted by everybody in every town or maybe they'd be accepted over time. I mean, honestly, you're raising dead people. Kyle, if I could raise dead people, I would pretty well go ahead and map out the Brian Means tour. I'm going to hit every funeral home from here to the Mason-Dixon line, and then we're going to do something else. Start casting out devils. That'll be fun. Sell t-shirts, I guess. Or give them away. I don't want filthy lucre. I don't want to go to hell. So, whatever. But I would, Miss Glenda, anticipate most people in, let's say, McGee, would probably accept what I'm saying when I go into a funeral home one night and just everybody gets up and leaves, including the people who were dead when the night started. I would, I should rightly expect everybody to just say, okay, you preach. Go ahead. I don't care what you say. Go ahead. It's right. And that's logical, isn't it? Yes, that's logical. If we saw those things, we should expect people to listen. And these apostles might have expected to be received by everyone. But that wasn't true. The greatest preachers in the world, the most sanctified of us, the most gifted and polished speakers, the most sincere men of God will be rejected, not by some, by most. That shows how broken our world is. They'll be rejected not by some, they'll be rejected by most. And Jesus was telling his disciples that they would encounter some who would not even react to the initial preaching of judgment with any degree of appropriateness. That sounds like the world we live in today, doesn't it? We're in America. The gospel has been here always. The Puritans were the ones that came first. The gospel's always been here. And if you go out on any street corner, you can go to Jackson, Mississippi by a particular pink building. And the woman who owns the only abortion clinic in the entire state, if you tell her you're going to go to hell because of your sins, here's 400 scriptures that prove it pointedly. She will tell you to her face, she's a born again believer saved from God's wrath. She's wrong. You can look it up on YouTube. You can see her say it. She said it on national news a few years ago. And when you preach judgment, the coming kingdom, when you preach grace, mercy, the need to be saved, and the God who promises to save, all you'll get is vulgar responses, anything but repentance. Or perhaps Jesus lets them know that some would seem to be worthy. They might tremble a little bit. And then when the apostles go to their house, then come to find out none in that town would accept the greeting of the disciples upon their entering their homes. The reason that he said for the disciples to shake the dust off their feet 
in this case is, of course, a final testimony of judgment against these people. The rejection of the apostles and their message, literally, in the eyes of God, defiled the very land itself because it was literally a rejection of Christ. It's abominable to reject the Creator and the Lord of all things. How dare the creation reject its Creator? Matthew Henry said this, he said, Contempt of the gospel and contempt of the gospel ministers commonly go together, and they will either of them be construed into a contempt of Christ and will be reckoned with accordingly. When people deliberately reject Christ, believers can't endorse it or excuse it. We have to deliberately oppose it and expose it. As David said in Psalm 101, verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the works of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Guys, sometimes in life we just have to shake the dust off our feet. Where's the line on that? Let God speak to you. You preach the gospel. You preach the whole gospel. We don't manipulate the gospel. We don't preach the gospel for unrighteous gain. We don't preach the gospel with more of an eye, an eye on our physical needs than on the kingdom purpose. We trust God. We don't make up our own path so that we go preach to just the people who look like me and have the same ethnicity as me or the same uh, economic, socioeconomic class as me. We allow God or we trust God to direct our path where we go and also how we walk it to give us provision as we go, to protect us even from our own selves. We trust Him to give us proof of who we should be talking to. We trust Him for the productivity, the fruit bearing of our ministry. And then after we've done all that we can do in preaching the gospel faithfully, we shake the dust off our feet and we trust Him for penal action. Jesus told his apostles to shake the dust off their feet when they were rejected. And they trusted God that he would deal with the issue in the end. They trusted him for penal justice. They didn't, hit, they didn't have to go and get personally offended. They didn't have to go and strike out at anybody because God was really the one being rejected, not them. God promised to grant this justice. Again, Jesus said of these towns... It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And I think we all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. God sends angels in, gets out the few righteous that are there. Come on, Lot, we're getting out. God's done with this. And he rains down fire and brimstone and destroys the two cities and the surrounding areas. Amen? So why is that? Why will it be worse? Now think about that. I think in our mind, Joe, sometimes we just kind of look at that we just think, Saying, no, no, he says worse. It will be worse. Some of us trip over that because we don't know how it could be worse. Well, let's look at what Jesus says in chapter 11, verse 20. Um, he answers this question of why it is that it's going to be worse and why, you know, why it'll be worse. Um, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, not only by himself, but also by his apostles he'd sent out. Because they did not repent. Remember we said if we go out, Miss Glenda, we raise the dead, all of McGee should listen, right? If we go out and we cast out demons, 
All of Brandon should listen. If we go out and we go to the hospitals and we clear out all the hospitals and everybody that's sick gets up and instantly walks out totally healed and totally whole. Jackson, Hattiesburg, Stark, Vegas, everybody, they ought to listen to us. Because we've proven to have the truth. That's why these signs and wonders are there in a valid way. But if they don't repent, they reject God and His messages, this is what Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethesda. Bethsaida, excuse me. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have done what? Repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Meaning these lost people who haven't, they're not Israelites. They weren't, they don't have the patriarchs and the covenants and the, the law and all. They don't know as much as you know. You've had this the whole time and you hear it preached to you the way it really should have always been preached to you and it's confirmed with signs and wonders that even the Pharisees can't deny. And you refuse to repent when these pagan cities, if just some of those works had been done, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. They would have crawled through broken glass in their repentance. Woe to you. But I tell you, it would be more bearable on on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And for you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable on that on the on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What does that mean? This is what that means. There will be a hotter hell for those who hear the gospel often and willfully reject it. Period, paragraph, end of story. So how do we respond? We trust God. We go to the lost sheep around us. How do we know who they are? We preach. We share the whole truth with boldness. Why do we do this? We have to do it because it matters so much to our king. Jesus didn't send these men out on a mission that really didn't matter to him, that he didn't care about. He cares about the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.41 tells us that Jesus wept over the lostness of Jerusalem. Saving the lost, brothers and sisters, really does matter to Jesus. It's important to Him. And if we claim to love Him, it should be important to us too. He sent His disciples out to see this work accomplished and He's doing the same with us today. So we have to go, we have to proclaim the gospel, and we have to trust Him in all the ways we talked about tonight as we go. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you so much for your mercy. I want to thank you for your word, Father God. I want to thank you for the encouragement of your word, the challenge of your word. Father, none of us are good at this. None of us trust you the way we should. I know I don't. Father, I'm asking you to please move on our hearts the way you want to, the way we need you to, Father, um, so that we can be the best servants of our Lord Jesus uh, that we can possibly be better than we can be on our own, but everything you can make us to be, Lord. I pray that you put people in our path, um, the path that you lead us down, so that we can witness to them. I pray that we'll witness in the right way, that we'll trust you to meet all of our needs of every kind, protection, provision, everything, Lord. We trust you for proof of who we should be talking to. We want to trust you for productivity and fruitfulness in our labor, God. And Lord, for those who reject the gospel, we just turn them over to your judgment, Father God. But we do pray that you'd be merciful. We ask that you would, instead of turning 
so many over to eternal judgment, condemnation. Father, we ask that you would just turn them over to Satan so their body might be destroyed so that their spirit might be saved. We love you, Lord, and we praise you, and I worship you, and I want to thank you for my church family. And I pray that you'll bless every one of them, Lord. Take us out and bring us back in your will. In Jesus' name, Father, amen.